CHUM AM Toronto is TSN 1050, an iHeart radio station and the voice of Toronto sports. I'm Tristan Fitzpatrick with a TSN 1050 Sports Center update for Subaru. Summer nights are made for Subaru with lease rates from 0.5% at your local Ontario Subaru dealer. Subaru, confidence in motion. I certainly can't do what I used to do 10, 15 years ago, but you know I'm, I'm still able to hit the majority of my shots. And I've had to learn a, a golf swing that is restricted. That was Tiger Woods speaking ahead of the PGA Championship, which starts tomorrow. Tiger is still working on his career resurgence. He finished 31st at Bridgestone last week after a top 10 finish at the Open the week before. The Jays turn to Mike Hoschild tonight in Game 2 against the Red Sox. And tonight here on TSN 1050, you can listen to Toronto FC and the Whitecaps in the Canadian Championship final first leg. Now to Toronto today with Steve Simmons on TSN 1050, the voice of Toronto sports. This is Toronto Today on TSN 1050. Good morning and welcome to Toronto Today. Steve Simmons of the Toronto Sun in for Gareth Wheeler on this rainy morning. I got to tell you about last night before we get into what we're going to be talking about over the next two hours. I come out of the Blue Jays game as it ends in extra innings, rather badly actually for the Blue Jays as usual last night, and it is pouring. It's not just pouring. It's Wizard of Oz pouring. It's the houses are starting to fly away. And I have, I've been going to sporting events in this city since the mid-60s, and I have never seen anything like what I saw outside Rogers Center last night. The rain was ridiculous. To walk a block through the rain and on the roads and how thick the water was and how high it was, was shocking. Honestly, it it looked like one of those CNN scenes you see when they show the storms, except there was no reporter standing out in the middle of it with his, you know, with his jersey or his jacket or whatever blowing in the wind. Uh, When I walked across Lakeshore Boulevard last night to get to my car, the water was at least up to my knees. And you don't know if you're walking on the road or the curb or whatever because you can't see anything. And then you get in your car and you start driving to try and get home. The normal routes are blocked. A lot of the roads were blocked. And every once in a while, this crushing downpour coming usually off of a truck or whoever was beside you completely enveloped you in water. You could not move. You could not see. It, it, was, it was frightening. I'll, I'll be honest with you. It was frightening. And it was also fascinating to see. And to try and drive home through that last night... And look at this. I've never seen Toronto like this. It's the first time I've ever seen this. Um, You've seen it on the news. You've seen it in other places. You've seen it on CNN. How many times was somebody out there in the middle of a hurricane? Uh, I'm not sure what happened or what caused it or why. But I've never seen anything like it before. And I thought, you know, I'd come on and tell you about that. Because frankly, it's something I've never experienced or seen. We're going to talk baseball 
It's this time of year. You have to talk baseball. Blue Jays blew on an extra innings last night. They had a a nice game against a really good outing from Marcus Stroman. Terrific outing from Marcus Stroman. He's into the eighth. He's got a blister, and he can't can't continue the game. And I'm not sure he would have gone much further anyhow. He He was pretty close to the end, but he had a terrific performance against a very, very good Boston Red Sox team and then came out, and then it's funny because the sky opened up outside the dome, and it actually started raining inside the dome, and then the Blue Jays' bullpen started raining, and it's like raining from the bullpen, and it's raining all over the place, and 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 Giles, the, the new Asuna, gives up two home runs in his, in his first Toronto outing. Uh, welcome to Toronto, Mr. Giles, and uh, hope things get better from here on in. Over the next two hours, we're going to talk some Jays. Richard Griffin of the Toronto Star will join us at 1120. We're going to talk about that. And and here today with a little bit of a heavy heart. And at the same time, there's a time when you've had a life and you've had a great life and it, and and you've lived it all. Then it, it's not with sadness, really, that, that you talk about Stan Makita passing away, but with reverence. And Stan Mikita, one of the greatest hockey players in NHL history, one of the one of the great Blackhawks, if not for my mind, the greatest Blackhawk who has ever been, um, did everything. Played played center. Here's here's the best way I could could explain Stan Mikita. Jean Beliveau is the ultimate centerman, hockey player kind of guy, gentleman. That ever played. I mean, everybody looks up to Jean Beliveau, the late Jean Beliveau, and everybody. There is a reverence for Jean Beliveau that there isn't for very many other hockey players. In the '60s, when Stan Mikita was at his best, when he was winning scoring titles, when he was winning MVPs, he was first team All Star at center in the NHL six times in the in the ten years of the '60s when Jean Beliveau was starring for the Montreal Canadiens. So put it on... on you're not, I'm not saying he was equal to Jean Beliveau. I'm not saying he was as elegant. I'm not saying he was that f- central figure that you, know, that you have state funerals for. But I can tell you, he was one of the greatest that we've ever seen. You know, he's... Uh, you know, if you're going to go through centers who played in the NHL, you, you, know, you start with Gretzky and then you go to Lemieux. And then probably to Beliveau. And then, you know, Makita's not far after that. He, he comes into that group. And we're, we're going to talk to Dave Stubbs of, of NHL.com. He's basically, if you, if you don't know Dave Stubbs, he used to work for the Montreal Gazette. Uh, he is the, now he has been hired as an historian for the National Hockey League. And as an historian, you know, one of the, one of the things he gets to do is, is fly around and get to know and meet, um, you know, some of the great stars of the game, you know, years after they played, and he writes and tells their stories very well over and over again. You know, he wrote a lot about Johnny Bauer when Johnny passed, you know, earlier this year, and he's written a lot. He wrote more about Beliveau, I think, than anyone has probably ever written about Beliveau when that happens, and, and we're going to talk to him about Stan Makita uh, at 11.40. In the second hour... We talk a little bit about oh boohoo the Raptors aren't on Christmas Day again. I don't know why this is a big deal, but it seems to be a big deal. I think those of us who live on this side 
of the 49th parallel and understand what it is to be Canadian should understand one thing. America doesn't care about us. We don't push the needle on American television. So the fact that the Raptors aren't on American television on Christmas Day is not a snub against the Raptors. It's a, we can't get ratings from Canada. It doesn't matter that there's 6 million people um, in the city of Toronto and, and a huge Raptors following here. For ABC or ESPN or wherever the games are going on Christmas Day, they don't get a number. They get zero. They get zero. So what? they'd be better off putting the least popular American team on television on Christmas Day than putting the Raptors on for all the audience that the Raptors will bring in for them. So it has nothing to do with how good the team is. It has nothing to do with DeMar DeRozan. It has nothing to do with Kawhi Leonard. It has nothing to do with this. They are snubbing us again. No, they're not. They are, putting a, they are not putting a team in another country on their television networks because they don't get any numbers for it. And, and we're going to talk about that in the, in the second hour a bit. We're also going to talk some Leafs. I mean, we have to talk Leafs, right? It's, I know it's August, and I know we're getting to that point. And I'm thinking about this yesterday. I don't remember a summer where this much happened for the local hockey team and the local basketball team with Kawhi Leonard coming in to the Raptors, with John Tavares coming into the Maple Leafs. Uh, I can't wait for October. I mean, it's, it's August now, and this, we should be enjoying the summer. But I, I, would, I wouldn't mind a little fast-forward action here. Let's start, um, let's start a hockey season tomorrow if we can. Let's start the basketball season tomorrow if we can. Because what do you want to see? There's an unknown here. How does John Tavares fit in with the Leafs? Where does he fit in? What works? What doesn't? What does the power play look like? What does the offense look like? How, how different are they with another great player? And how different is this 59-win Raptor team with a new coach and Kawhi Leonard and you know diff- a different dynamic and a different um, defensive structure, certainly, with... Leonard and and Danny Green, who's also a very good defender, coming to a team that, even though their rating as a defensive team was high, I always found that when push came to shove and and games were on the line, they weren't as great defensively as their rating sometimes showed them to be. You know, if if you're feeling like I am right now, like this is, you know, we're talking, this is August 8th. I'd really like this to be October 8th. You know, kids can be back. And I know you'll be back in school. You're not going to like that. Parents will be happy because kids are back in school. But I'm ready for for the hockey season to begin. And I'm anxious for the hockey season to begin. And I'm ready for the baseball season to begin. Oh, sorry. Baseball season hasn't begun. We're, sit, we're sitting here in game 100 and something. And we're still waiting for the Blue Jays. Apologize for that. We're talking about waiting for the Raptor season to begin and, and see what all that's going to be. And Mike Kelly's going to join us in the in the second hour to talk about the Leafs and to look at it from statistical points of view. If you don't know Mike Kelly, he's a really interesting guy. He's an NHL statistics guy, but he's not one of these crazy analytics, this is the only way the world works kind of people. He's He breaks things down into areas that you can learn from and adjudicate, and, and he breaks down information to see where are teams, where are they going, 
One of the, one of the things he, he likes to do is talk about where players are on the ice. And so we're going to talk to Mike Kelly about the Leafs and what he expects from them and how much offense. And whether a team, and this is going to be interesting for the whole season, because I think it's going to be a theme of this entire Leafs season coming up. Whether a team with three great centermen and puck domination, which you should get when you have that kind of offensive ability, can that make up for a lesser defense? We saw it in Pittsburgh a couple of years back when Chris Letang was hurt and the Penguins won the Stanley Cup. We saw that a team that took care of the neutral zone and and got away with having Ron Hainsey on its first pair of defense with Dumoulin, won a Stanley Cup and, and did it in, in rather impressive fashion. Can the Leafs do the same kind of thing with Matthews, Tavares, and Kadri? And, and throwing a lot of different looks at the opposition and trying to keep the puck. The best way to play defense is to keep the puck out of your zone. And I think that's, that's the way the Leafs and, and Mike Babcock are probably going to have to approach that. We're going to talk to Mike Kelly about that in the second hour of the show. And, and, and if you're listening, I think you'll, you'll find what he has to say is, is usually illuminating it. You know, I, lo- I love talking hockey on any day of the year, frankly. It's, it's, it's my favorite thing to do. Uh, you can do it all the time. And, uh, and, and one, one of the things I find is, is when you do it with someone you'll learn something from, then the conversation is better. It, it's just the way, I don't know, it's just the way um, you, know, you learn about the sport or you gain information. So when I talk to when I hear Ray Ferraro talk, when I hear Pierre Maguire talk, there's certain guys in the industry. When you hear them talk, you learn things from them, and that's one of the reasons I love speaking to them. So we're going to come back. We're going to talk some Blue Jays. Rich Griffin joins us in a bit. What's going on with John Gibbons? I wrote a column today about his future, and I think he knows he's done as manager of the Jays, and it's just a question now of when. And where does the front office go from here? And where does the ball team go from here? Rich Griffin will join us next. I'm Steve Simmons, and this is Toronto Today on TSN 1050. All right, traffic's lighter, but it's still a grit grind home. You'll go baby monkey on that anyways. Lighten up your drive with Overdrive this afternoon at 4 on TSN 1050. Welcome back to Toronto Today. Steve Simmons of the Toronto Sun in for Gareth Wheeler. If you're watching the Jays last night, Marcus Stroman, new haircut, had one of his best outings of the year. He had it going on. He'd given up one run to the very good Boston Red Sox, and he came out to pitch the eighth, and you know, blister on his finger uh, made him uh, leave the game. Ironically, considering what kind of season this has been for the Blue Jays, the blister was on his middle finger, and which is symbolic of the kind of season it seems to be. 3-1 at the time. The score ends up as 10-7. Um, Ken Giles gives up two home runs in extra innings. Um, the new Osuna, um, not so new and not so Osuna, uh, from, from that point of view, in, in, the, in the 10-7 loss, it's... Uh, 
it looked as Stroman left that with you know some kind of decent bullpen work, the Blue Jays get a win over the you know record-breaking Boston Red Sox, and and it goes that way. But the story that was around the Jays yesterday, uh, the story surrounding the team, so to speak, um, was about John Gibbons and what his future is as manager of the Jays and whether he is um, you know, going to continue or there was even a, a hint that he may have been losing his job this week. There was a report on Rogers about that. Not really a report, a note in a column about that, um, that he would be replaced by DeMarlo Hale this week and that the Jays would then look for another manager for the future. Um, when I asked people, I was at the game yesterday and I asked John Gibbons and others about um, about the circumstance and the situation and the, and the rumbling that was going around. He knew nothing about it. He'd heard nothing about it. Um, it didn't seem to have resonated with any of the players I spoke to. And, uh, and so it's one of those things you got to ask, you got to inquire, and you got to figure out where, where is John Gibbons right now, who's, who's been joking all year, come out and watch John Gibbons manage his last season in the majors. That's sort of been a standing joke for him this year. But um, you know, that was the, the, con- the context that was surrounding the game, so to speak, last night, and didn't necessarily go any further than that. I've written about it in Today's Sun if you want to take a peek. And to talk about State of the Jays, John Gibbons, what's going on there, and we ask that every day, considering the story seems to change just about every day. We're joined now by our friend Rich Griffin from the Toronto Star. Good morning, Griff. Hey, Steve. Um, where do you stand on, on John Griffin, uh, John Gibbons and his future and the story going around yesterday, if it was a story at all, about his managerial future? Well, the danger of paying attention to stories about anything to do with the Blue Jays is that half of the media covering is paid for by the same people. So it, it makes it very difficult to sort of separate the wheat from the chaff in this case. But uh, my, my stance on it, I, I spoke to, uh, I had dinner with uh, GM Ross Atkins at spring training, and we had a debate about whether... Uh, John Gibbons was one of the top 10 managers in Major League Baseball among 30 teams. And coincidentally, he was saying yes, and I was saying no. He was saying he was among the top 10. So if they fired him now, it would be a, a scapegoat situation. And I see no reason for them to make such a move until the end of the season. And you pointed out, end of the season, I think everybody's on board with, with uh, that they're willing to eat his 2019 salary, and I think it would be better for everyone involved. But to bring someone in for the last month and a half seems to make no sense to me. The strange thing about this season and Gibby is I think in some ways he's had to manage better and he's had to manage harder because the roster has been so much in flux, the pitching staff is such a mess that he's had to do things that, frankly, major league managers don't normally have to do. And I think it's actually shown a side of him maybe I didn't see before. Well, you're right, because uh, we sat in his office last night and uh, I asked the question about is this a, a tougher manage than 2015-2016 when he went to the playoffs. And, I mean, we anticipated his answer, and yes, it is. And, and then... 
immediately after that, the game uh, came along. His starting pitcher was cruising seven innings, uh, 92 pitches. Marcus Stroman uh, looks at his finger, has to come out of the game with a blister. Then he puts in uh, his setup man, who has been the setup man, um, but was forced to try and close when Osuna was gone. Now they've got Ken Giles to close, and neither one could put the game away. So Gibbons pushed all the right buttons, and the result was uh, a ridiculous 10-7, to 10-inning loss to the Red Sox. And, and this has happened, I mean, I've been watching this all season, and this has happened so often it's, it's, it makes you smile. It's, it's almost ludicrous. Well, I, I loved one of the lines he used in, in his pregame uh, sit-down with us when he was talking about, you know, you can make the right move as a manager and it comes back and blows up in your face, as he did last night. And you can make the wrong move some nights, and it, and it works for you. You know, Ryan Tapera gets tossed last night. This comes after um, Marcus Stroman injures. This is, this is the beauty of last night. He injures his middle finger. Like, who better to give the middle finger to, to Blue Jay Nation than Marcus Stroman? You know, him of the effing terrible team thing. Uh, and then, and then the new closer comes out and bang, home run, bang, home run. You know, he keeps doing that. He's going to be punching himself in the face an awful lot. Yeah, I, I stuck my head in uh, Gibby's office after, as we were walking out of the clubhouse. I said, Gibby, you know, you've had more middle finger issues than CNN at a Trump rally, and he laughed because, <laughs> because you know, he's a noted Trump guy and or pretends to be. But yeah, it's. You know, there's not much he can do. Uh, replacing him at this time with uh, someone like DeMarlo Hale makes no sense. I think what they should do, and this is just my opinion, I think a guy like John Schneider is an up-and-comer. He's been in the organization. He's at AA New Hampshire where all their stud players have come through, where where Vlad started this season, where, where Bichette and those guys and Biggio are. And he's a, he's a Blue Jays guy. He's coached every one of these players that are going to be coming up for 2019. They have a chance in September to bring a guy like that up once the AA season finishes, have him see what it's all about at this level, and then maybe make that move at the end of the season. But to do it now is ridiculous. So my old friend, our old friend, Michael Farber, has been advocating for a number of years that the Blue Jays need an Hispanic manager, or certainly someone who speaks fluent Spanish because of the influx and the number of Spanish players that they have and are going to have. Um, you were with Felipe Alou in, in Montreal. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's funny because I, I had asked Alex Anthopoulos when he was here, and, and, and the clubhouse was dominated by guys like uh, Unal Escobar and Batista and Edwin Encarnacion, and, and it was before he hired John Gibbons in 2013. And I said, do you need to hire a Spanish-speaking manager? And, you know, I thought the answer would be, yeah, we're going to investigate, we're going to check it out. And his answer was, no, I need to hire someone who can manage a, a ball game and win some games. It doesn't matter whether he speaks fluent Spanish or not. And I found that interesting because Anthopoulos, to me, seems like a very open-minded GM who would be progressive and move forward in that area. So I believe, you know, I worked with Felipe, like you pointed out, and uh, he handled that situation. The Jays have always had um, uh, one coach, at least, who's Spanish-speaking, and I think that the guy at the top, the manager, 
does not need that ability, but he does need the ability to push all the right buttons and make the right moves and, and engender some confidence from that clubhouse. So play GM or president for a minute. Look at the roster that's here right now. Tell me who you go forward with or who you like that you can build with because you have to rebuild this thing. It's not going to stay the way it is uh, going forward. Well, I would uh, start going forward with uh, Russ Martin and Troy Tulowitzki uh, because they're making $20 million and nobody, can, nobody will take those contracts. And, and you're paying, you'd have to pay the, at least half of them, maybe all of it, to get rid of them. But uh, moving forward, I could go with Danny Jansen and Luke Maley behind the plate. I think Justin Smoke, with the contract that he has, has a role because he saved uh, slugs like uh, Salarte and those guys a dozen errors maybe at first base. And he's got a reasonable contract moving forward. Um, second base, shortstop, third base, I could replace all those guys, and I would look to. Uh, even Devin Travis, wonderful man, wonderful human being, but not the type of guy that moving forward you want to see there every day. Part of it is the injury problem. Uh, Randall Grichuk I would hang on to. Kevin Pillar, not so much. Um, and uh, Teoscar, I would, you could do something with him, even if he had to DH or something because he's not a very good outfielder. But there's not that many. There's not that many out there. Um, I would... What I would do is take uh, young pitchers, young starting pitchers next season, find out which ones can do it, can do it at the major league level. And then 2020, I don't think they can wait beyond 2020 to try and sell that they're competing again to the fan base. 2020, fill in the holes surrounding the guys that showed they can do it and then move forward from there. Because I looked at the beginning of the season and not trying to be wearing rose-colored glasses, which is something I'm not exactly known for. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I really liked their starting rotation. I thought they had an upper-end major league starting rotation. And yep. that's before Aaron Sanchez disappeared into Florida and before Stroman has been up and down and Hap is now gone and Marco Estrada will be gone at the end of the year. And uh, and I thought that uh, the left-hander would give them some innings. And so what happens is, you know, basically not one guy other than Hap did what they were supposed to do. And now it looks like, boy, where do you go from here? Well, I think what, what fans should look at, and I agree with you. I remember at spring training this year sitting around with four or five other media guys, and we're going over the rotations in the American League and seeing where the Jays rotation, five-man rotation after Jaime Garcia was signed, where that rank. And everybody had top five. And how'd that work out? You know, how, how smart is that group that I was sitting around with? And I was one of them who said, yeah. But the thing about it is that when they did sign Jaime Garcia to a $10 million contract in late February, and they had hung on to Josh Donaldson for the final year of his contract, I think that that should have been an indicator to fans that, yeah, they wanted to compete. I mean, they were outsiders, uh, but they wanted to contend at least for a wild card in 2018, and that did not work out at all. Well, they believed, I was told this, they believed this was an 85-87 to 87 win team to start this season. And if they get a little good in one direction, 
Maybe it goes to 90. If they get a little bad in the other direction, it goes to 80. And that's before, you know, Donaldson has all his problems and Sanchez has all his problems and Stroman has all his problems and Tulo doesn't play. And you can run through all the, all the reasons why. The two guys that fascinate me in a way, because I still don't know what they are or what they're going to be, and there comes a point where at this age you should know who, what they are and what they're going to be, is we don't know what... Aaron Sanchez and Marcus Stroman are. Are they top of the rotation pitchers? Are they middle of the rotation? You know, does, does Sanchez have to go back to the bullpen? I, I don't know what the answer to that is. Yeah, and uh, I mean, they haven't been healthy together for a full season, and I'm fascinated to see if that does happen next season. First, we've got to see Sanchez come back and do his two or three rehab starts and then come back in September and put together a good month without any finger issues. Stroman is so mercurial you don't know i mean he's battling the perception that that right hand short right handers have trouble being top of the rotation pitchers and and that for some reason is a a sort of a belief a, a core belief of baseball guys for the last hundred years so can those two guys anchor the top of a rotation they're going to have to in 2019 and then fill in with some of the younger guys. I mean, you, you see Ryan Barucki, and I think Sean Reed Foley is a guy they're just waiting to start his clock on. And if he comes up in September, maybe he'll have a chance to show something. They might need to fill in with short-term contracts with veteran guys, and there's plenty of those every winter. To, to, and then roll the dice, see if these guys can stay healthy, see if, as you're asking, uh, Sanchez and Stroman are true top three pitchers in any rotation, in a, in a good rotation, and go from there. Would you trade Stroman or investigate his value? And, or, and, and, and extending that, what do you think his value would be in the trade market? Well, I'd definitely uh, explore his value, but I wouldn't be looking to trade him because you haven't seen, uh, hopefully, the best out of him that you're going to. And, and, and if you wait that he's, you know, he's under control for two more seasons. If you wait and get something better out of him for the Toronto Blue Jays, then that gets his value up there. And maybe maybe next trade deadline, uh, if you're of that mindset and somebody's giving you something really good, maybe you do it then. But I wouldn't do it this winter. I would listen. That's all I would do is listen. And I wouldn't push the idea that we want to trade Marcus Stroman if I was Ross Atkins. Last question before letting you go. What do you do with Josh Donaldson? Well, at spring training, like I said, they were, uh, they were um, looking to contend with Josh Donaldson, having a huge year in a free agent season where he wanted to put up big numbers. That moment has gone. That moment has passed. And when they couldn't trade him at the trade deadline, uh, they got to wait until he's on uh, rehab assignment before they can even put him through trade waivers. And if he clears trade waivers, I think by the end of August, he'd be gone in a trade. If he doesn't clear trade waivers and they have to pull him back, um, I think they'll make him a qualifying offer reluctantly. And I think he won't take it because he's got too much pride and this is his big payday. But the big payday won't come if he doesn't play this year. And if he does take it at $18 million, uh, then they just find a place for him to play. But if they tell him you're going to have to be uh, a first baseman or a DH because we've got Vlad coming up and we want to keep smoke, that, that would 
preclude him from also considering the qualifying offer seriously. That, that's the fascinating thing here. That their number one prospect, the number one prospect in all of baseball is a third baseman. Their number one player, when everything healthy, is a third baseman. And aside from that, they have next to nothing. So that's the way it goes. Rich, thanks so much for this. Enjoy game two tonight, Red Sox and the Blue Jays at the Rogers Center. And I hope the rain has stopped and the flooding has stopped by then. I'm bringing my snorkel. All right. Thanks, Rich. All right. That's Rich Griffin of the Toronto Star. Blue Jays game two tonight. Red Sox in town. The Red Sox on pace for like, what, 108 wins? The most in franchise history. Crazy, crazy season for that team. Just, you know, there's never been one like this before. The Red Sox last won, by the way, 100 games in 1946. That is, by my calculation, 72 years ago. So that's how crazy and incredible this season has been. We come back, we're going to talk about the life and the career of Stan Makita, one of the great NHL players of all time. If you never saw him play, you missed something. Welcome back to Toronto Today. Steve Simmons in for Gareth Wheeler. And I was about 10 years old, I think, when my uncle knew a player on the Chicago Blackhawks and he got me into the dressing room and they took me around at the time and got autographs from all the players as we walked around the room. And a guy handed me his stick. Not that big of a man, but he handed me a stick and I looked at it. I've never seen a curved stick like that in my life. The man was Stan Makita. And it looked like a banana curve. I mean, it was, it was like a, one of those boomerang kind of curves. And I took the stick home, and of course, I had to try it with a tennis ball. And honestly, I tried to shoot the ball in one direction, and because of the curve, it actually went in the other direction. That's how big the curve was. It was a pretty amazing, you know, your eyes were, were, were you know, that wide open when you saw something like this from a star like that, with a stick like that. You'd never seen anything like it before. And of course, we never saw anything like Stan Makita before either. He passed away yesterday, one of the greatest players in NHL history, one of the most dynamic players in NHL history. And NHL historian Dave Stubbs joins us now to talk about the career of Stan Makita. Good morning, Dave. Good morning, Steve. I'm surprised you didn't put the ball over your house with that stick. You know, I, I tried to, just to explain, I tried to shoot north and it went uh. east. Like... It was crazy. And, and for years, I just kept it in the garage because it was really, you couldn't play with it. You, you didn't want to touch it. And, well, and no, you didn't. Of course not. I mean, it reminded me of the first sort of stick that I got. It wasn't an NHL player's stick. It was one that my dad got for me. I actually won it at a promotion at a, at a Mercury dealership in 1967. And uh, Gordie Howe was there doing a promotion. And they had a board up in front of the net. Of course, this was done so that the kid would, uh, would score. He could not fail to score, right? The entire bottom of the board was cut open. So the last thing you want to do was send the kid home crying when you want the father to buy a car. So anyway, uh, I, I won a stick. And Gordy signed it, and I took it home, and I, I played it down to a toothpick on the road, and then my dad backed over it with a car and smashed it into splinters. So there you go. Happens to all of these things. <laughs> they all disappear when you should have kept them and put them away and That's somewhere. why they're worth a million bucks when you see them on the market now, because there are none of them left. Yeah, I want to find my cards. I want to know where my cards are. My so, mom threw all mine out. She said they were getting old and mildewy in the basement. Yeah, mine disappeared, I think, on one of my moves to university. You know, all of my stuff went with it. Uh, <laughs> 
I was trying to think about where 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 I place Stan Makita and and sort of compartmentalize the career that he had. And I know how much you think of Jean Beliveau. And I'm thinking of the 1960s. Stan Makita was first all-star at center six of the ten years in an NHL that has Jean Beliveau in his prime. Yeah. That, to me, says, I, I don't know if I can come up with a second sentence after that. Uh, you're right, Steve. I mean, this is the guy who won the, the Ross, the Hart, and the Lady Bing um, in consecutive years, the first time ever anyone had ever won those three trophies. And this is a guy who reinvented himself. That's the thing that most impresses me about Stan Makita, is the fact that he went from being a quasi-goon. I mean, like a, a lot of them were, were sort of chippy penalties, but I mean, he spent, a, it was, he spent 154 or less minutes in the penalty box in 64-65, and two years later, he spends 12 minutes in, and he's winning the Lady Bing Trophy for the first of two years. So, like, I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, the fact that uh, the story that I like is that his his daughter Meg uh, was watching TV one day, and I, I was she, hope I was hoping you would tell this one. Yeah, I mean, she's watching television, and she says, "Daddy, I see Kenny Warham and Bobby Hull and all these guys out on the ice, and I see you sitting by yourself in the bench. Like, why are you doing that?" And, you know, out of the mouths of babes, right? I mean, here's this, Stan Makita's daughter is saying, like, why are you spending all this time in the penalty box? And it occurred to Stan that he was going to be much more used to the Blackhawks on the ice than he was in the penalty box. I think Billy Ray had that conversation with him. Uh, Dave Keon told me yesterday that um, uh, Stan Makita, against whom uh, Dave had played in Major Junior in Toronto, Dave was St. Mike's and uh, Stan on the St. Catharines teepees, he said, we played against each other, uh, and we played each other hard. Uh, I didn't like him. I don't think he particularly liked me, and I carried over to the NHL. There was enormous respect between the two, but these were two guys who, who played uh, when Stan was playing within the rules. I mean, these two guys were, were getting less penalties than you know anybody out there. But the fact that these guys were, were against one another, Dave said that Stan arrived with a bit of a chip on his shoulder, and I laughed, and I said, that's sort of like saying that Wayne Gretzky had a bit of talent. I mean, like, uh, yeah, there was a two-by-four on, on Stan Makita's shoulder, and he went into the corners, and if you came out uh, with the puck, you probably were doing so with bruised ribs because you were not going to do it lightly. And um, I was uh, I was one of the players I was speaking with yesterday. Uh, it would have been, was it uh, was it Dave? I spoke with him. He, he said that he, he was reminded uh, very much of, of, of what would have been, no, it was Ivan Cornway. He said it was like Ted Lindsay. Uh, reminded him much the same way. These two guys, they they were absolutely fierce, ferocious competitors, and you were not going to get into the corners uh, without paying the price to come out with a puck. One of the things with Makita that I always think about is not only was he a scoring champion, not only was he an all-star, not, but he was sort of the signature of the Chicago Blackhawks. Bobby Hull left, other people came and went, Stan Makita was there for his 21 years, and he was there for virtually every year after that. Every time I went into Chicago, especially in the old stadium in that old press box, he'd be in there, and he'd be cracking jokes, or he'd be pulling pranks, or he'd be doing something um, you know, to, to get you going. He, he just never seemed to leave or stop being a Blackhawk. 1,394 games all with the Blackhawks, 155 playoff games all with the Blackhawks. The interesting thing is, is that for a time, Steve, uh, as you know, uh, some of these, these legends of the Blackhawks, 
felt that they had been cast aside. They felt a little bit like the dishwater that was being tossed out. And it was because of management, because of neglect, because of a whole lot of different things. But when Rocky Wirtz uh, took control of the team and installed John McDonough in the president's office, the Blackhawks understood that they needed uh, a thread to connect uh, the great teams of the past of the Blackhawks. Uh, and, and let's face it, uh, Glenn Hall and Bobby Hall and Stan Makita brought these guys out of the NHL uh, wasteland, if you will. It was 1938 that they had won the Stanley Cup and they didn't win again till 1961 with those three guys basically quarterbacking what was going on. When Rocky Words took control of the team and McDonough came in, uh, the first thing that McDonough did arriving from the Cubs, he said, we've got to be embracing these legends. And they opened their arms and they brought these guys back in. So while Stan Makita in the last years of his life was not able to get out and do his, his ambassador duties, wasn't able to be out with the public and all the things that the Blackhawks do in the community, he very much was embraced as a member of that ambassador crew. And uh, today... It's Bobby Hall and Danny Savard and Chris Chelios is there and Tony Esposito. But Stan was very much part of that. But you're right. I mean, he was, he was there whenever he, whenever he was there and felt welcome to be there, Stan would be around that hockey team. And that's why he will be revered forever as a member. And you're right, as a face of the Blackhawks or the teams that he played on and beyond. Talking with NHL historian Dave Stubbs. when, when we talk in Toronto so much about the last Leaf Stanley Cup and the four Cups won in the 60s because, frankly, that's all we have to talk about when it comes to championships. You know, it's not like you not guys. Not for long. Not like you guys in Montreal that can, you know, I know. <laughs> it's going to happen eventually. But my point, my point is, in the 60s, while the Leafs are winning those four Stanley Cups, you can make an argument that on paper... The Chicago Blackhawks had a better team. The Leafs had no one to compare to Makita. Keon was good. Makita was better. The Leafs had no one to compare to Hull. Mahovlich was good. Hull was better. You know, Glenn Hull was the goalie. As, as good as Johnny Bauer was, I think Glenn Hull was better. But come playoff time, the Leafs found a way. And for whatever reason, the Blackhawks couldn't. And Bobby Hall has said that in 1961, he felt that was the, going to be the first of a long string of Blackhawks championships, and he was so confident about that that it occurred to him that he never took a drink out of the, out of the Stanley Cup. Bobby Hall never, since then, he probably has at various functions when the Blackhawks have won the Cup a number of times in recent years. He probably has been at parties and has enjoyed that, that privilege, but he did not do that that night. And it, it cuts to what you say. I mean, this was a team that on paper, I mean, looked like they should have been one of the runs. They should have had a dynasty in the, in the 60s, but the Maple Leafs, those three in a row, uh, got it done. And then, of course, the Canadians won it in 64-65, where Jean Beliveau famously wrote in his autobiography, we're glad that our five-year route has ended. And I know it was a different time, but you, there's now an entire generation of Montreal Canadiens hockey fans who have not seen this team in a Stanley Cup final, no less win the Cup. It's been since 93 that they've done that. But I laughed yesterday going through some of the pictures. I mean, there was a photo that I tweeted of Stan Makita's stick, uh, and I've joked that he would never go hungry because if he didn't have a spoon, he could have used a stick to eat soup. Um, you compare it to a banana blade, Ivan Cornway has called it a boomerang. Um, you looked at this thing, it, it was ludicrous. Uh, and, and you look at, you know, the stick that Makita would have used, and as I was talking with Cornway, he said, well, there's no way that, that Stan could take a backhand. And Dave Keon kind of said, well, you know what? He didn't necessarily have to, but he knew how to pass the puck off the heel of his stick. And you imagine having that kind of dexterity at, at speed uh, in, an, in an NHL where you're playing the same teams 14 times a year, and there are some very bitter rivalries that are formed, and guys basically want to take your head off. 
and Makita was passing the puck not off the blade of a stick, but off the heel of a stick and being a playmaker. So uh, amazing, amazing stories that these guys are telling and remembering about Stan. I mean, he truly was one of the originals and, uh, you know, what he brought to the game and then what he brought to the community of Chicago and beyond past that, I mean, as, as a revered member of this, of this organization, has been very, very special to hear from some of his uh, former uh, teammates and opponents the last day. So trying to be as objective as possible, I think, I think we put Gretzky and Lemieux right at the top of NHL centers, uh, the best we've ever seen, and then you get into Beliveau and Crosby, uh, and right after that, I, I think we're talking, that's where Makita comes in. I think you're right, and it was funny. I think Butch Goring had a tweet. Was it yesterday or maybe this morning? He, he talked about him, and he said, "I learned so much about the position of center from this guy." He said, "I don't think I won one single draw from him ever." And um, yeah, again, you just even look at you look at the technology, Steve, right? Of how the game has changed, how how sticks and 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 how the, the temperances of sticks have changed. These guys were using these big, heavy slabs of lumber. I mean, they were basically trees with with the bark shaved off them. Uh, you know, to see these guys be able to handle the stick and win face offs and, and be playmakers like they were uh, was amazing. But no, I do, I do not disagree with you. Stan Makita is one of the, in the handful of the top centermen, I think, in NHL history. Uh, just you look at his statistics alone, uh, you know, winning the trophies, uh, twice winning the Hart, twice winning the Bing, four times winning the Art Ross. Uh, he's, he's an all-star eight times. Um, and, you know, playing on some teams that were not tremendous teams. That should have been. That should have been winning more than they did. But still, I mean, to be doing this uh, night in, night out on those hockey teams uh, in the original six NHL, I think, uh, really speaks to the quality of of, of man that he was on the ice. And and I've always had an affection for Glenn Hall and how he played the game and and just in terms of talking to him and such a nice, gentle man, and he has a wonderful perspective on things. And, And I heard this from him yesterday, and I don't know if you talked to him or not, but he said that sometimes you, you, you're sad when one of your teammates or one of your colleagues or someone you know passes away because, you know, it's the end of an era or that kind of thing. But because Stan Makita had dementia and has been out of it now for a couple of years, he said that this, you know, it, it was time and this, is, this was good that he, that he went. I think that's true. Bobby Hull said the same thing last night. I saw a little uh, video clip of Bobby last night, and he said uh, as well that, um, you know, as as difficult as it is to lose a friend and a teammate and and really a a blood brother, uh, what you are are losing is is also compensated for a little in that uh, his wife and family, grandchildren, kids can kind of now pick up and move on with their lives because uh, Stan's wife, Jill, uh, Glenn, by the way, was the best man at uh, the wedding. And I tweeted a picture last night that uh, Glenn's son sent to me out of Glenn's personal collection. Mike Ditka was in the wedding party, and you see him on the left. It's just a tremendous photograph. Um, Isn't that a timepiece just by itself? Yeah. I mean, things don't happen like that anymore. Tavares just got married, I think, on Saturday, but we don't even know who, who was involved. And in those days, you've got Glenn Hall in the wedding party of Makita with, with Mike Ditka there. Well, a great story about Stan and his and his his wife is that they met in '62, and uh, Jill was working as a secretary for a congressman in Illinois, and they were introduced by a mutual friend, and they saw each other a couple times. Anyway, Jill winds up going to Washington. Stan gets invited to a party somewhere in Washington, a political party. He decides he's going to. He's she's kind of dropped a hint that she likes a certain cut of diamonds, so Stan picks up on it, goes out and buys a ring, guesses her ring size, gets it right, goes to this party in Washington, and they're sitting around and waiting, and it's just 
just a typical political party. It goes until 3 o'clock in the morning. Stan finally gets up, and he's, he's tired. He wants to go back to his hotel. He basically puts the ring on the table, says to Jill, here you go, here's the ring. You want to get married? Here you go. If not, I'm leaving. I'm going back to the hotel. So he turns on his heel. He's about to leave, and she says, well, I'm not so sure. And that stops Stan Makita, who is, you know, a man's man in those days, and stops him in his tracks. And she says, well, yeah, well, maybe we should get engaged. And they did. And so uh, Glenn said he was absolutely honored to stand up and um, be best man. And I said, Glenn, like you're, you're a, I talked with him yesterday at length, and he, I said, you're a practical joker. You're a guy who loves a gag. Did you pull anything? And it was almost ruefully that he said, no, you know what? I didn't. He said in those days, but now he's thinking. And, and I know that Glenn Hall's wheels are still turning this morning, trying to think of the prank that those guys could have played on Stan Makita. And I'm sure it would have involved curved hockey sticks and equipment and, and jock straps filled with Absorbing Junior and God knows what else they would have done. But I'm sure they would have had a great time on the wedding night. Dave, thanks so much for this today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Steve. Take care. That's Dave Stubbs talking about Stan Makita. If you never got a chance to see him play, then I feel sorry for you today. We're going to come back with Sound Wars and the second hour of Toronto Today. I'm Steve Simmons. You're listening to TSN 1050 Radio.